0: This week, with senators returning to Washington to try to pass a fourth coronavirus relief package, Jim Newell, who covers Congress for Slate, he says it's worth keeping in mind that a third of these senators, they're up for re-election. Jim, if I'd talked to you about what the 2020 Senate prospects looked like a month ago, (laughs) what would you have said?
1: Uh, I would have said it's kind of close to a coin flip.
0: Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he's on the ballot this fall. Same with Republicans from Maine, Colorado, Arizona.
1: I would have called it a target-rich environment, but... <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, there, Republicans have more seats up this time, but... It's hard to find sort of the the tipping point race that could give Democrats control of the Senate.
0: So for Democrats, at the same time, they are figuring out the math of how to get enough relief to small businesses, how to keep unemployment checks flowing. In the back of their minds, they're also doing this other math, how to gain control in Washington If they can hold on to the seats they've got, they need to gain three more to even up the ranks. But as this new coronavirus spread around the country, and as Joe Biden took control of the top of the 2020 ticket, something funny started happening for Dems. Their math started to change. The whole reason we are talking about Democrats potentially having a shot at flipping the Senate, which (laughs) seemed not so long ago like a distant, almost fantastical dream, it all comes down to money, right?
1: Yes. What kind of money are we talking about? Well, I mean, one example is uh, Mark Kelly, who is uh, the astronaut, husband of Gabby Giffords, the former congresswoman. He's running against Martha McSally in Arizona, and he raised $11 million the first quarter and has $20 million on hand. Now, that's a lot of money. And you're seeing a lot of candidates, too. I mean, you see Sarah Gideon in Maine. She, she's raised over $10 million, something like $14 million. That's a lot of money.
0: So as the money rolls in for Democrats across the country... Jim's going to explain what that actually means. With the virus still looming, nothing's guaranteed, especially not a predictable election season. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. So you say the three states that Democrats are really focusing on are Arizona, Colorado, and Maine. So let's just go through those, like, piece by piece. When I look at Maine, I just think about how long Democrats have been thinking about trying to flip the Senate. You know, I still remember the Brett Kavanaugh hearings were going on and Susan Collins, the sitting Republican senator in Maine, she gave this speech when she voted him in. I believe that she is a survivor of a sexual assault and that this trauma has upended her life. Nevertheless, the four witnesses... And during that speech, Democrats were raising money for her opponent, who didn't exist at the time. But it just shows you how thirsty the Dems are to take down some Republicans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll admit I'm surprised that Maine is as competitive as it has been. I mean, Susan Collins has always won her races with 60-some percentage of the vote, had bipartisan popularity. She's pretty shrewd and, you know, she'll give the Dems one here and she'll side with the Republicans here. But uh, her favorability rating is really bad. Um, There was a recent poll. She was at 37 percent approval. And I thought watching that Kavanaugh speech, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, this will polarize her numbers a little bit more. But then, you know, she'll probably recover a little bit as time goes on. That hasn't happened. I mean, she is really in the fight for her life here. And I'm just surprised that she's been unable to sort of dig out of that hole.
0: Her challenger is a woman named Sarah Gideon. So who is she and, and what does this
1: race look like right now? Uh, she was the, the speaker of the main house.
0: And how is she doing? Like you you say that the approval ratings for Collins are way down, but what are Gideon's chances looking like?
1: I mean, most of the handicappers have it as a toss up right now, just because even, even though Collins is underwater, she's going to have a lot of money behind her. And Mitch McConnell, you know, after that Kavanaugh vote that Collins delivered is, says that Saving Susan Collins would be his number one priority. So if you look at the polling, it's it's pretty, you know, in a dead heat. Um, we'll see how that progresses going forward. But I, I really thought going into this cycle that it was another pipe dream for Democrats hoping to take on Susan Collins. Um, but it, it really isn't. I mean, she is absolutely vulnerable.
0: Hmm. All right. Let's talk about Arizona Because that's where Mark Kelly is running.
1: Now, I never expected my journey to bring me here. Gabby was the member of Congress in the family. She's also the woman who taught me everything I know about how to use policy to improve people's lives.
0: He's, of course, Gabby Gifford's husband, former astronaut. (laughs) And you said he's just raised a massive amount of money.
1: Yeah. Um, So he's running against... Martha McSally, who, well, let's just say this race is, is shaping up to be a little bit similar to Martha McSally's last one, which she lost. Where she lost. <laughs> yeah, she ran in 2018 for Arizona Senate against Kirsten Cinema. She lost by a few percentage points. And then Republicans, you know, they sort of put McSally in as their future for the Senate in this state. But then she lost and they couldn't quite figure out who they wanted to appoint to um, John McCain's seat. There wasn't really anyone else who came to mind, so they appointed her to John McCain's seat. So now she has to run in this special election for another two years, and then in twenty twenty two there'll there will be a full term election. Oof. Yeah. No. It's this Arizona is there's just Senate races every two years for as far as the eye can see. Hmm. But yeah, she's she's really she's pulling pretty poorly against Mark Kelly. He's out raising her, so that really seems to be you know, a a seat that Democrats have to win and they're in pretty good position to do it.
0: Hmm. And then you talk about Colorado. That's where the former governor, John Hickenlooper, is running. He's not the only governor who's thrown his hat into the race because now we also have Steve Bullock in Montana. So what stood out to me about this is, you know, a few months back, I remember having a conversation where people were really worried that Chuck Schumer couldn't attract people to run for the Senate. And the question was, why won't people just run for the Senate? This is a powerful body. And, and maybe we know that now more than ever with all of this legislation rocketing through having to do with the coronavirus. So what's happening in Colorado and, and what does it tell you that these sort of big players in the Democratic world are now running for Senate?
1: I mean, I think the calculation is always just—you'll hear these candidates say when when Hickenlooper and Bullock were running for president. You know, they swore left and right that they would never run for Senate. They have no interest in running for Senate. You know, they're governors; they don't want to just be one of a hundred in a legislative body. But I, th- I think really they're just—you know—one they wanted to see if their presidential campaigns could go anywhere. They did not, and then they just want to see if they can win once they. You know, they look at the numbers and they they think that there's a pretty good path to victory. Then they'll get in the race. So Hickenlooper in Colorado he he's nearly cleared the field of a lot of candidates who are running in the primary before he he changed his mind is and decided to enter the race. Um, so he will win that primary, and then he's up against Cory Gardner, who won in 2014, which was a really good Republican year. This is. An absolute must-win for Democrats. It's their their number one target. They should win it. John Hickenlooper is popular. Cory Gardner is not that popular. So if they do not win Colorado, then they have significant problems.
0: Part of the challenge for Democrats has to do with where they're running and whether their states went for Trump in 2016. In Montana, a state that Trump won by 20 points— Governor Steve Bullock was hesitant to throw his hat in the ring. That is, until after Super Tuesday. That's when Joe Biden surged, and it seemed like he was well on his way to the presidential nomination.
1: I mean, that was a pretty clear case of, of Biden's nomination versus Sanders, you know, being the deciding factor there. I think if if Schumer wasn't so persistent to Bullock, maybe he might not have gotten quite that far. But, you know, I think the national environment certainly helped. I I. I Do not think that Chuck Schumer flying to Montana would have gotten Steve Bullock on the ballot with Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket. Did he
0: literally fly to Montana?
1: Yeah, no, he did fly to Montana. Hmm. And we should talk
0: about how popular Bullock is in the state because he's a Democrat leading a state that Trump won. But he's very, very popular.
1: Right, and this was something that uh Steve Bullock himself stressed quite a bit in his presidential campaign to no avail that he won in 2016 with Trump at the top of the Republican ticket and Bullock was able to to hold on to that race. You know, it's a real opportunity and there are differences between you know gubernatorial elections and federal elections. Sometimes red states might go for a Democrat for governor, but in terms of sending someone to washington they'll just send a you know a, a warm body to join the republicans in washington so it's still gonna be really uphill fortunately he's running against steve danes the senator who won in 2014 not really the most distinguished person not someone who montanans you know have posters of on their wall what do you mean when you say that well he's just sort of a guy you know I mean, I say that as a Senate reporter. I've talked to Steve Daines. Eh, eh, you know.
0: <laughs> he's a guy. I mean, it sounded like Danes was kind of realizing he was going to have to contend with Bullock, potentially, was raising money very early on to just kind of have a war chest and, like, hunker down in
1: case he had to do this work. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure he's definitely feeling the fire right now. I mean, I don't know if there's been any polling to see how this shapes up so far. There's gonna be some big structural impediments there given that Trump's probably gonna win the state by like 20. So that means that Steve Bullock needs a lot of ticket splitters at the polls in order to, to pull that off.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the liabilities for Democrats because it's not just that they're looking to pick up seats. They may also lose seats and and I think the seat that most people are talking about is Doug Jones in Alabama, but there are others,
1: yeah, I think doug jones is is i mean he's in another league, I think he's the most likely u s senator of either party to lose his seat this year
0: why Why is that? Is it just that you know he was uh... It just happened that he ran against an especially weak candidate in Roy Moore last time.
1: Yeah, a a historically weak candidate in a special election environment. I mean, mean, Doug Jones was a very good candidate, too. Um, But now he's running against either Jeff Sessions or uh, Tommy Tuberville, who's a a former football coach there, who are both going to be fine for Republicans. I mean, Trump is going to win that state by 30-some points. And it's just that's just going to carry whatever Republican is there unless they have an especial acute liability, like a history of, you know, preying on girls at the mall and being banned from the mall, which I don't think. The Roy Moore story. Yeah, the Roy Moore story, which I I don't think is gonna be the case again.
0: And then you said Michigan, too, is a place where Democrats are on the ropes.
1: Yeah, I don't know if i quite say on the ropes, but they're paying attention. This is where Gary Peters. Uh, is the incumbent Democratic senator? You probably don't know anything about him because no one knows anything <laughs> about him. I cover the Senate. I don't know anything about him. He's you know pretty quiet guy. His name recognition is not that great, even in Michigan. I know Republicans have been running a lot of joke ads, you know, calling him Jerry Peters, which isn't especially funny. But they're just making a joke about how people don't really even know the name of the senator. Um, and he's running against John James, who ran for Senate in 2018 against Debbie Stabenow. He lost by about five percentage points, which is pretty good in an overwhelmingly Democratic year against a, a pretty strong incumbent. He's running again against Gary Peters. So that's definitely one that Democrats are watching closely.
0: It's weird that they're running an ad making fun of his name when the person they're running against him is named John James right. which just doesn't sound
1: like a real name. Right. I don't know. They like the Republicans are tapping into something there about just the <laughs> the essential blandness of Gary Peters, but it's also not a very uproarious joke that they're going with. So they need to workshop it a little bit more. <laughs>
0: I'm wondering how the candidates who are running, like, what they say about the state of the Democratic Party right now. Like, are, are these candidates indicating where the party's going at all?
1: I think it's a bit of a continuation of the 2018 playbook where, you know, the, the emerging growth sector, so to speak, and in those who are coming towards Democrats were— Um, suburbanites in the South, the Southwest, both young people who may have moved to the suburbs of some of these cities and ex-Republicans who are pushed away from Trump. I mean, this is really where the Democratic Party has been growing. And so Democrats in 2018 picked candidates who would appeal to them. You know, veterans and ex-prosecutors, ex-CAA officials with pretty centrist beliefs, but also, you know, more open to things like gun control than a lot of more centrist Democrats were in the past who represented more rural areas. This is a lot of what the future of the Democratic Party looks like if you want to convert a lot of these states, a lot of these um, sort of -of middle-of-the-road candidates who, who can appeal to the suburbs. You know, the left does not like that this is the trend where the Democratic Party is going, but this is the, the segment of the party that is growing. And so you're going to see candidates who more and more cater to them.
0: How are any of these candidates, Democrat or Republican, talking about getting out the vote given the unique circumstances we're in right now?
1: I don't think anyone's quite figured out how campaigning in the fall is going to be done. I don't think we've really turned the corner on, on, you know, how this is even possible. You know, we know that rallies and everything are suspended for the foreseeable future. Are they going to be suspended throughout the fall too? In which case then the entire campaign is basically going to be just TV ads and, you know webcam rallies but who's going to actually go to those so it'd mostly be a war just fought on the air which is a, you know a reason why it's important that democrats have been able to raise all this money pretty early on um but it just remains to be seen you know whether we'll get back to normal looking elections if the virus you know is is contained well enough by the fall or if it's just going to be you know everyone in quarantine watching the campaign through you know paid media for the next seven months
0: oof i hadn't thought about it that way but you're right where it's like the election's not going anywhere the question is
1: or there's an, another way i mean you could <laughs> it would be a good test on whether all this stuff like holding rallies and knocking doors you know if we don't have that and it's just a campaign pretty much on you know, candidates doing uh, local TV interviews and doing paid media with lots of advertising and the results are pretty much the same. (laughs) It's a good test on whether a lot of that in-person stuff is bullshit actually, and like how much rallies actually matter.
0: Is it silly for us to be talking about the Senate prospects at this particular moment? Because it's early, because there's so much else going on. I'm wondering what it tells you about sort of the state of politics right now, like why it's worth having this conversation now?
1: Well, the the races are still going to happen. I mean, it it would be too early to make predictions about who's going to win control of the Senate. But these races are still going on in some form or another. You know, coronavirus just changes the message a little bit. It becomes, you know, what has your senator done about coronavirus? Uh, Did your senator... Vote for this relief bill Did your senator push Trump hard enough You know, when he wasn't Taking coronavirus seriously So it changes the contours But the campaigns aren't pausing You know, There's no national unity Suspension of politics during all of this So yeah, I, I think it's You know, it, it seems like a second-order thing But, um, you know Don't be confused for a second that That these are just on the back burner right now Jim Newell, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.
0: Jim Newell is Slate's senior politics writer. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mara Silvers, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. I'm Mary Harris. You can find me during the day on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I'll talk to you
1: tomorrow.